All right, so we are in week two of our series, Meals with Jesus. And in this series, we're just looking at the meals that Jesus had and the incredible uh, things that happened over, over dinner. Uh, the times when they would have a meal together and how he would teach them and things that he would say. And there's all kinds of really uh, cool things. And so uh, Jesus shared, taught, and did uh, so many neat things uh, as they gathered together to eat. Uh, Jesus loved a good party. And uh, besides enjoying a meal and, and the fellowship, uh, he would use these meals, these gatherings, these banquets um, to proclaim his gospel of forgiveness. He would, he, would, he would reach out to those who usually wouldn't be included, and he would welcome people in that, that uh, many others would view as outcasts. He used some of these events to perform miracles. If you begin to study this theme throughout Scripture, you'll notice that food has had an important uh, part of the religious landscape really since the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. You know, that was the first bad meal uh, ever had right there, and it's caused all kinds of problems. So whether rich in spices or rich in significance, meals in the Bible uh, can give us a picture really of, of what times were like uh, back in those days and the messages that Jesus was trying to uh, uh, give to us. The meal that we're going to talk about today is likely the most famous meal ever eaten in the world. It's the last meal that Jesus ate before the crucifixion. Uh, it's where uh, what we now call the Lord's Supper was established, communion or the Lord's table. Uh, you've probably seen multiple depictions of this. Probably the most, uh, the most famous is Leonardo uh, da Vinci's uh, Last Supper. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I don't know if this accurately depicts what it actually looked like, but this is probably the image that pops into most people's mind when we talk about the Lord's Supper. This was uh, painted uh, on a wall. It was 15 feet wide. It took three years to complete. It was, it was painted in Milan, Italy, back in 1495 to uh, 1498. So regardless of what it actually looked like, the conversation around the table that day is the most significant mealtime discussion ever had. I can't imagine what was going through the minds of the disciples as they sat and listened to Jesus that evening. So we're going to read about it. Luke chapter 22, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along on the app or just check out the screen here. Uh, Luke 22, verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the tables. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again, eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So let me set the stage here for you just a little bit. Uh, you know, he was, he was meeting with them to uh, share the Passover. Uh, the Passover is uh, in remembrance of, of the deliverance that God gave the children of Israel. Uh, if you remember back in Egypt, they had, been, they had been slaves for over 400 years. They'd been oppressed. It had been a terrible time. And God used Moses to confront Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. And eventually, after a series of plagues, Pharaoh let the children of Israel uh, go. And the last plague, as you may recall, was the death of the firstborn. When the angel of death would come, the firstborn of, of, of every family and the firstborn of every animal would be killed unless a lamb had been sacrificed and its blood had been sprinkled around the doorpost of the house. When the, when the, you know, when the death angel came and saw that the blood had been sprinkled with hyssop around the, the doorframe, he would pass over that house and not kill the firstborn uh, in that house. And so that is the, the Passover. It's a vivid and, and clear picture with a powerful message. And the message is simply this, that to be delivered from the judgment of sin, death must occur. But not only that, we discovered that the death can be the death of a, a substitute. So really what God was saying here is, is, I will spare you, I will spare you and deliver you from judgment. And it's okay if the death is that of an innocent substitute. And really, that's the whole point of the Passover, that God delivers through the death of an innocent substitute. Now, the animal sacrifices were not that substitute because no person is ever delivered from divine judgment by the death of an animal. The repeated sacrifice of animals was really just this symbol of the fact that God does deliver by death through a substitute, but no animal was ever satisfaction to God. And so they did it year after year. But now Jesus is letting his disciples know at this last Passover that he was about to become and be offered as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sinners, and that God was gonna pour out his wrath upon this innocent substitute. We see in Luke 22, verse 9, it says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In essence, Jesus was saying that he would be the last Passover. No longer did there need to be any animal sacrifices pointing to the one that would come because Jesus is the one who would come to be that final sacrifice. And so Jesus taught his disciples that the wine and the bread of the meal signified that he was going to be that sacrificial lamb by which sins are forgiven and reconciliation with God can occur. So at the Passover, God delivered Israel from slavery. At the cross, Jesus delivered us from sin. At the Passover, an innocent lamb without blemish or defect was sacrificed for the people. At the cross, Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was sacrificed for us. So the Passover pointed forward to Christ's death on the cross and the ultimate deliverance for sin. So here at this meal, Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples, and he transformed it, the Passover, into a new meal called the Lord's Supper. 
And when we share the Lord's Supper together, we share in communion and fellowship with God in a special way. Just as the Passover meal signified for Israel a release from slavery, the Lord's Supper or communion reminds us that we are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus said of the cup of communion, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the forgiveness of sin was secured at the cross for all who placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Just as the Passover lamb served as a substitute for the firstborn sons of Israel, Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. Amen? Now we notice in verse 19, this is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus died on the cross for you. His body was given for you. His blood was shed for you. And if your faith and your trust are in Christ this morning, then your sins are forgiven. Jesus has already paid the price on the cross and released us from the penalty of sin if we by faith trust Jesus as our Savior. So the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of Jesus' death on the cross. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So just as the Passover was a reenactment of God's deliverance for Israel, the Lord's Supper is designed as a reminder of Christ's deliverance for us. So just as the elements of the Passover meal have symbolic meaning, so the elements of the Lord's Supper have symbolic meaning. The bread represents Christ's body, which was beat and broken and torn for us. The cup of juice represents the lifeblood of Jesus, which was poured out as a payment for our sin. So the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he did for you and me. So the meal here shared in the upper room with his disciples is really the final Passover and the first communion. So this is, this is a big, this is epic, this is massive, this is monumental. This is a, a turning point in redemptive history. Jesus is putting an end to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and he inaugurates the New Covenant and the New Testament. He goes from Passover, the last legitimate Passover, to the Lord's Supper in this new memorial feast. And he ends millennia of celebrations that were looking back to the deliverance at the Passover. And now we look back to the cross and what Jesus Christ accomplished there. So really this meal marks the end of Passover. It's over. It's over. This is his last meal before his cross. And if you think about it, at this meal, he ate the lamb and then became the lamb. I can't imagine the emotions that Jesus' disciples must have felt as they sat here and broke bread with Jesus. Jesus knew that in a matter of hours, he was going to suffer. He knew that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be falsely accused, that he was going to be put through mock trials. He knew that he was going to be nailed to a cross he knew that he was going 
to die before the sun went down. He knew all of this, and yet he sat down with his disciples to share a meal. He washed their feet. He loved them in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of the goofy things they did. Jesus wanted to share his last night with them. Jesus knew the significance of this moment. He knew that his disciples would look back on this meal over and over and over again. And really, the message here of this Last Supper is that God has a place for you and for me at his table. Isn't that incredible? Like the disciples, we're going to blow it. We're going to break promises. We're going to say we'll do one thing and then do another thing. We'll make pledges only to forget them. But God knows that. And yet he saves a place at his table for us. It's a table of grace. It's a table of forgiveness. All are welcomed. Think of it, sitting at that table that night was a man who had seen the miraculous works of Jesus. For three years, this man had walked with Jesus, had listened to his teaching. He'd seen the miracles. He'd experienced the kindness of Jesus. And yet the lure of money and the lust for power proved too powerful for him to resist. Let's continue reading in our text, Luke 22, verse 21. But the hand of him who is going to betray me, Jesus said at this meal, is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question amongst themselves which of them it might be who would do this. I think it's interesting that Judas had hidden his devious heart so well that his friends didn't even know it was him. He had put on such a good show that the rest of the disciples couldn't even determine which one of the 12 it was. And so they would ask, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Sadly, Judas had every opportunity to trust Christ. He just didn't do it. He was chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12, to walk with him, Yet we have no evidence that Jesus ever chose Jesus. You see, Judas was of the camp that believed that the Messiah was going to come, was going to overthrow the Roman occupation, and that they were going to then form a new ruling power in Israel. And Judas was likely trying to position himself so that he would be a person of influence uh, when this new, uh, this new system took place. I mean, he wanted to be part of the ruling elite, part of the revolution. Unfortunately, Judas never understood what Jesus spent three years teaching his disciples. He walked with Jesus for years and never realized that he was walking with God. Can you imagine? So I imagine the mood in the room at the Last Supper kind of turned pretty somber at this point when Jesus said, somebody's going to betray me here, right? And so you would think somebody there would probably try and say something encouraging or positive, right? You would think somebody would do something good after that kind of heavy moment, right? Well, let's pick it up in verse 24. What happened? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. <laughs> Isn't this one of those moments where you kind of shake your head and say, are you kidding me? 
You're sitting at the last meal with Jesus. You're at the Passover with Jesus. He has just laid out the fact that somebody's going to betray him, and you start looking at each other, and you get into a debate over who of you is going to be the greatest, which one of you is the best, the smartest, the most godly, which one's the best friend of Jesus. How would you have responded if you'd have been Jesus? <laughs> I'm glad God's a merciful God, aren't you? Let's pick it up in verse 25. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them uh, call themselves benefactors. But you're not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? Here again, we see Jesus in the final hours of his life, and he takes time to teach his disciples. He, teach, he takes some time to, to coach them. Say, hey guys, let me, let me give you a little leadership lesson here. Hey guys, let me tell you what it's really like in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what God's really looking for. He's looking for somebody who serves. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then be a servant of others. That's, that's, what, that's what we're looking for here. What a powerful statement. Jesus said, listen, have I not modeled this for you? I mean, he was God. They had seen him perform miracle after miracle. I mean, clearly he had identified himself as God. They, most of the disciples recognized that he was the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And he said, listen, have I not set the example for you? I am among you as one who serves. The, the God who created the universe washed the disciples' feet. Think about that the next time you start to feel entitled. You start to feel that you're in a position where others should serve you. Remember that Jesus at this meal told his disciples, listen, be, be humble. Be a humble servant. What a powerful message here at the Last Supper. And Jesus, Jesus said, hey, be looking forward to another meal in the future. Verse 28. He said, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on uh, one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit at thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What's he talking about? He's talking about the future millennial kingdom. It's a 1,000-year it's a reign of Christ. It's going to happen when Jesus returns to the earth and sets up his kingdom. And he tells him, listen, I'm not going to eat the Passover again until I come back and I've set up my kingdom on earth after the rapture uh, and I establish the new kingdom. But in the new kingdom, the, the reinstitution of the Passover is not going to be looking back to the sacrifice that was made of a lamb uh, with the blood over the doorpost, talking about the, the, the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It's going to be pointing back to what Jesus Christ did on the cross as the final payment for our sins. So you can see here at the last meal, this was a meal for the ages. I doubt that there could ever be a more significant meal ever had. He celebrated the Passover, but instituted the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to take just a moment here to uh, comment on some things from 
from those of you who may come from a Roman Catholic background. The Roman Catholic Church believes that the bread and the wine uh, of the Eucharist becomes the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. This is known as transubstantiation. Uh, in the word Eucharist here, just the Greek word, which means uh, thanksgiving or praise. Back in AD 1551 at the Council of Trent, uh, it was officially stated that by the consecration of the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. So essentially here, the Catholic definition of the Holy Eucharist is a re-sacrifice of Christ or a re-offering of Christ's sacrifice or a re-presentation of Christ's sacrifice. And so that's why there's such a, a high priority put on this because they're saying that, that, the, that the bread and the juice become the body and the blood of Jesus and they're re-sacrificing Jesus at this Eucharist. Unfortunately, uh, that concept is not rooted in the Bible. Christ does not need to be re-sacrificed. Christ's sacrifice does not need to be re-offered or re-presented. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 23, it says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then pay for the sins of the people. Right here, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. What's it saying here? Scripture is saying that Jesus does not need to be offered over and over and over again for the forgiveness of sin because when Jesus died on the cross, he became the final payment for sin. Now, Peter, writing, he wrote it and said it like this in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Again, Christ, Christ only had to die once for our sins, not over and over again. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to atone for all sins, past, present, and future. It does not need to be reoffered. It needs to be received. So eating the bread and drinking of the juice are simply symbolic reminders of receiving the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf by grace through faith. So that we do not need to take communion in order to be forgiven. That was accomplished on the cross. Our responsibility is simply to believe, to trust in Jesus. So as we conclude our message today, I think it's only fitting that we close by taking the Lord's Supper. And hopefully, uh, by this point, you have an understanding of what these symbols mean. The bread that you're going to hold, it's unleavened bread. Leaven is a type of sin in the Bible. Uh, and so we, we give unleavened bread because Jesus had no sin in him. And, and this bread is symbolic, and it's a reminder of the fact that Jesus was beaten. Jesus was nailed to a cross. 
the cup of juice is a reminder of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that, that he is the one who paid for our sins. People sometimes ask me, well, preacher, why don't we have communion every Sunday? Well, we're not instructed in the Bible to have communion every Sunday. In just a moment, I'm gonna read you the passage. It says that just whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So we're not instructed to do this every Sunday. We're just saying that when you do it, here's how you should do it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Scripture says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So here scripture tells us that, that the bread and the juice are to be a reminder whenever we do it. Adventure, we do it the third Sunday of, of every month. Uh, but there's no particular reason why it has to be that way. I'm going to ask you at this time to prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. It says that we're to examine ourselves before we partake of the bread and drink of the cup. So I'm going to give you just a few moments of quiet reflection and a time of personal prayer. If there's any sin that you need to confess, use this time to confess any sin. And uh, just spend this time in your mind just reflecting and remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's have a moment of personal prayer, then I'll close this in prayer and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, we hold in our hands these symbols of Christ's broken body and his shed blood. And we marvel at his love that he would be willing to come and live a perfectly sinless life and to suffer to pay for our sins. God, we remember Remember what Jesus went through on our behalf. False accusations, being mocked, being beaten with sticks, being whipped, having his beard ripped out, having a 
crown of thorns placed upon his head, having his hands and feet nailed to a cross, having a spear stabbed into his body. Father, we can't even imagine the love that he would have that he'd be willing to do that for us. But God, we're grateful. We're grateful for your mercy. Let's all stand as we sing our final song this morning.